Father, thank you so much for this morning, Lord, and that we get to gather and study your word in this gorgeous weather we've been having. Just ask that you would uh, please bless our time together, um, give us wisdom and insight and understanding. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, so like I said, today is our, our first part of creation science. Um, so we're dealing with the age of the earth and the age of the universe. Now, I always respect people when I talk to them when I know exactly where they come from. So I'll let you guys know exactly where I come from. I'm a young earth creationist. Um, so what does that mean? It means that I hold to a, a relatively recent creation view of, of the earth and the solar system, okay, and, and the universe as a whole. So right around between 10 to 50,000 years old is kind of the max date uh, that I end up giving it. I see that evidence not only in the biblical record, because um, we can kind of add up genealogies and, and get a rough date of creation from there, but I also see it as a scientist in the geological record as well. Um, any of you guys do any hiking or anything like that, like in the North Cascades? Does it look that old? I mean, is it really that weather eroded? I, I mean, it's still jagged and sharp and... I mean, if it was billions and billions and billions of years old, don't you think you know, wind and, and rain over time would have flattened these things out and we really wouldn't have jagged peaks anymore? I know there's um, explanations given for that, but that's just my view, okay? So today we're gonna talk about the age of the Earth. So what's the most common method that scientists use for aging anything? Something called carbon dating. Right, exactly, Joyce. Do you guys know what that is, what carbon dating is? Carbon dating, for those of us that are listening online, um, is where we measure the amount of carbon on a, a rock or a fossil. And what that gives us is an approximate age of when it had died, okay? So, well, how do we end up doing that carbon dating? We have to have one really key factor. It's called uniformitarian geology. So we have to assume that the amount of carbon raining on that thing has been the same all throughout history and it hasn't changed, okay? That's a problem to begin with. Um, we can't assume that. What's the other problem? Well, we don't know how much carbon was in the atmosphere when it died, right? Um, I forgot to bring a candle today and I was just gonna have a candle lit here when you guys all came in this morning. And I was gonna ask you, well, how long has this thing been burning? You have no idea until you can measure how tall the candle was before I lit it and then you can measure each subsequent you know, inch it goes down and how long that takes. Does that make sense? So whenever we see a fossil or a rock that's being carbon dated, what do we know about it? It died. That's the only thing we can know about it. We don't know how much carbon was it uh, on the beginning, when it died, and we don't know the rate at which carbon has been raining down. Obviously, we have a lot more carbon producing stuff in our world now than we did 50 years ago, right? So let's talk about diamonds, for example. Natural diamonds are believed to have been formed deep underground in the upper mantle of the Earth's crust under very, very extreme uh, temperature and pressure. Pure carbon is formed into a diamond's crystalline form, right? <laughs> Over time, the diamond is moved upwards by rising magma. Natural diamonds are commonly believed to have been formed millions of years ago. However, if the rate of carbon-14 decay has been consistent, any carbon-14 older than 100,000 years is undetectable by current measuring techniques. But carbon-14 has been measured within natural diamonds. You get where I'm going, right? 
either the, the decay rate of carbon-14 is not uniform, it's not the same, the diamonds are younger than believed, or both. Carbon-14 in diamonds is evidence that the Earth is actually not billions of years old. So evolutionists at this point generally feel secure, even in the fact, fact, uh, excuse me, face of compelling creationist arguments today, because they're utter confidence in the geologic timescale. Even if they can't provide a naturalistic mechanism, they apply to, quote, the fact of evolution, and they define it as a fact. I don't. I define it as a theory, as a belief, by which they mean an interpretation of the Earth's history with a succession of different types of plants and animals in a drama uh, spanning hundreds of millions of years. Okay, the Bible, however, by contrast at this point, paints a very radically different picture of our planet's history. In particular, it describes a time when God catastrophically destroyed the entire planet through a worldwide flood. The only consistent way at this point to interpret the geological record in light of this event, the flood event, is to understand that fossil-bearing rocks are the result of a massive global flood that occurred only a few thousand years ago, but lasted but a year, okay? This biblical interpretation of the rock record implies that the animals and plants preserved as fossils were all contemporaries, meaning that they all lived together at the same time. Uh, we'll get into that later, but there's a ton of evidence for that that everything was together at the same time, not in spans of millions of years apart. Um, one quick example to, to whet your guys' appetites, okay? Remember last week I was talking about the skin of the T-Rex that we found with the intact blood cells and everything? There's also something very important about that skin uh, when we found it. It was scaly with circles around it. It's what it looked like, okay? We had never seen that before, um, before discovering that. Now, in Inca, Peru, there's something called the Inca Stones. It's about 65,000 black rocks with pictures of dinosaurs that were painted on them. All types of dinosaurs, brontosaurus, T-Rex, um, pterodons, pterodactyls, a lot of stuff. However, when they drew the pictures of the dinosaurs on these rocks, they drew pictures of the skin, and it was scaly with circles on it. How did they know that? When we had just discovered an intact T-Rex skin, we didn't know what the skin had looked like before. So there's a quick example, okay? So although creationists have long pointed out the rock formations themselves testify unmistakably to water catastrophism on a global scale, evolutionists generally have ignored this particular testimony. So this is partly due to the legacy of the doctrine I'm talking about, of uniformitarianism passed down from the one generation to the next um, by the guy named Charles Lyell. Do you remember that? That was the book that Charles Darwin took on his uh, voyage on the HMS Beagle that he read. So uniformitarianism assumes that a vast amount of geological change recorded in the rocks is the product of slow and uniform processes operating over an immense span of time. So as opposed to a global cataclysm, a global flood, as described in the Bible and other ancient texts. By the way, it's not just the Bible. Do you guys realize every single historical culture that has a written history has a story of a global flood? Almost all of them have only eight survivors. The Chinese call the father Nuhu. Huh, interesting, right? With the discovery of radioactivity about 100 years ago, Evolutionists now deeply committed to the uniformitarian outlook believe that they finally had proof of the immense antiquity of the Earth. In particular, they discovered the very slow nuclear decay rates of elements like uranium while observing considerable amounts of the uh, daughter products from such decay. They interpreted these discoveries as vindicating both uniformitarianism and evolution, which led 
to the domination of these beliefs in academic circles around the world throughout the 20th and 21st century. Okay, however, science prevailed and modern technology has produced a major, major fly in the uniformitarian ointment. A key technical advance which occurred about 25 years ago involved the ability to measure the ratio of C14 atoms to C12 atoms with extreme precision and very, very small samples of carbon using an ion beam accelerator and a mass spectrometer. Have you guys heard of those terms before? Okay. So prior to the advent of this accelerator mass spectrometer or AMS method, the C14 and C12 ratio was measured by counting the number of C14 decays. This earlier method was subject to considerable what's called noise from cosmic rays. Okay, so the AMS method improved the sensitivity of the raw measurement of the C14 and C12 ratio from approximately 1% of the modern value to about 0.001%. So 1% to 1 1,000th one of a percent. Okay, so extremely precise now. So it extends the theoretical range of sensitivity from about 40,000 years to about 90,000 years. The exception, or excuse me, the expectation was that this improvement precision would make it possible to use the techniques to date dramatically older fossil material, right? That's what you would expect as an evolutionary um, geologist. The big surprise, however, was that no fossil material could be found anywhere that had as little as 0.001% of the modern value. That's a problem. Since most of the scientists involved assumed the standard geological time scale was correct, the obvious explanation for the C14 that they were detecting in their samples was contamination from some unknown source of modern carbon with its high level of C14. You get that? They even recognized that today's carbon has a higher value than what they were testing in the past. So they understand that it's not uniformitarian, the amount of carbon, but they're still using dating methods that rely on it being uniform, right? So therefore, they mounted a major campaign to discover and eliminate the sources of such contamination. So although they did, to be fair, they, they corrected a few relatively minor sources of C14 contamination, there still remained a very, very significant level of C14, typically about 100 times the ultimate sensitivity of the instrument. In samples that should have been utterly void, no C14, including many from the deeper levels of the fossil-bearing part of the geological record. Okay, let me, let me explain why this is such an, such an issue. So let's consider what the AMS measurements imply from a quantitative standpoint. The ratio of C14 atoms to C12 atoms decreases by a factor of two every 5,730 years. So after 20 half-lives, or 114,700 years, assuming hypothetically that the Earth's history goes back that far, the C14 and C12 ratio is decreased by a factor of two to the 20th or about a million, okay? After one and a half million years, the ratio is diminished by a factor of about 10 to the 79th power. Okay, be very clear. So what does this mean? This means that if you were able to start out with an amount of pure carbon-14 equal to the entire mass of the observable universe, this is one heavy block we're talking about. If you had that, after one and a half million years, there would not be a single atom of C14 remaining in it. You get where I'm going at? That just disproves that the universe cannot even be one and a half million years old using current technologies. It's not possible. 
So routinely finding C14 and C12 ratios in the order of the 0.1 to 0.5% of the modern value, 100 times or more above the AMS detection threshold, means that there is a huge anomaly for the uniformitarian framework. So this earnest effort to understand the, quote, contamination problem, therefore generated scores of peer-reviewed papers in the standard radiocarbon literature during the past 20 years or so. Most of these papers acknowledge that most of the C14 in the samples studied appear to be intrinsic to the samples themselves. They're saying, well, that's what it was made out of, okay? And they usually offer no explanation for its origin. Where did it come from? The reality of significant levels of C14 in a wide variety of fossil sources from throughout the geological record has thus been established in the secular scientific literature by scientists who assume the standard geological time scale is valid and they don't have any uh, special desire for this particular result. So the bottom line of this research is what? It is now the case that it's extremely compelling that the fossil record was produced just a few thousand years ago by a global flood cataclysma. The evidence reveals that macroevolution as an explanation for the origin of life on the Earth cannot therefore be rationally defended because the timeline isn't there. If you guys remember, what is required for macroevolution? Millions and billions of years. That's what they appeal to. If given enough time, anything can happen. But we're saying that the time isn't even there. Using their own methods, we don't have that amount of time in the given universe. Okay, taking a look at other examples of why we would see the universe being younger, much younger than they would have thought. Galaxies. Galaxies wind themselves up too fast. Let me explain. The stars of our own galaxy, the Milky Way, they rotate, okay, about the galactic center with different speeds, the inner ones rotating faster than the outer ones. The observed rotation speeds are so fast that if our galaxy was more than a few hundred million years old, it would be just a featureless disk of stars. It would not be the spiral that we see. Yet our galaxy is supposed to be at least 10 billion years old. Evolutionists call this, they have a name for it, the winding up dilemma, which they have known for about 50 years, okay? They've devised many theories to try and explain it, each one failing after a brief period of popularity. The same winding up dilemma also applies to other galaxies. For the last few decades, the favorite attempt to resolve the puzzle has been a complex theory called density waves. The theory has conceptual problems, however. <clears throat> it has to be arbitrarily and very, very finely tuned and has been called into serious question by, unfortunately, the Hubble telescope. And the discovery of a very detailed spiral structure in the central hub of the Whirlpool galaxy, M51. So what, what causes, what's the, the formation of this very, very old universe, old age um, theory? It's the Big Bang Theory, right? So do you guys understand how the Big Bang Theory, um, how they say everything came in, into being? If you don't, I'll, I'll re recount it for you. So they say that all of the matter in the universe came together. Where it came from, nobody knows. But now all the matter in the universe came together into the size, I'm quoting some of my science textbooks, in the size of a period at the end of a page. Really? That's one heavy dot. All of the matter of the universe, the size of a period. Now, this period began spinning, spinning, rotating, 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 faster, 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 until it exploded, big bang and it forms planets, galaxies, moons, stars, all that. Okay, now let me teach you about an observable scientific principle that we see here on planet Earth right now. I'm gonna teach you some physics this morning.
okay? It's called the law of conservation of angular momentum, and it is a physical law on this planet. Do you guys remember those metal merry-go-rounds when we were kids? Okay. Now, imagine we have a bunch of fourth graders on this thing, and we take, oh, I don't know, the Seahawks to start spinning this thing. And we're gonna spin it counterclockwise. Why am I spinning it counterclockwise? Because most of the planets in the solar system rotate counterclockwise, just to give you an example, okay? So we're gonna spin this thing counterclockwise, the Seahawks are, of these fourth graders. About 10 miles an hour, what's happening? Kids are all, come on, come on, can't you go faster, can't you go faster, come on, okay? About 20, 25 miles an hour, the kids are holding on for dear, dear life, now they've shut up. About 40, 45 miles an hour, what happens? <laughs> kids fly off. Now here's the interesting part about the law of conservation of angular momentum. Since we were spinning this thing counterclockwise, when the kid flies off, he too or she will be spinning counterclockwise until they encounter a piece of resistance, such as a tree or the ground, okay? <laughs> Why is this a problem for old age and evolutionary theories? Every single planet in our solar system rotates counterclockwise, except for two. Venus and Uranus, how is that possible? It's not, considering that law I just stated, it is not possible, that can't happen. Triton, Neptune's largest of 13 moons, orbits in the exact opposite direction of its planet. Okay, so not only do you have Neptune orbiting clockwise while the rest of the planets are orbiting counterclockwise, now you have Triton orbiting counterclockwise, oh, and vertically as well. Scientists believe, um, one of Jupiter's moons rotates literally in the wrong direction, and they're believing that it's going to crash into the other moons, and it hasn't. So here is two of uh, Neptune's moons, Naiad and Thalassa, and they're kind of elongated potato-like shapes, about 100 kilometers in length. They're the innermost Neptunian moons known with a very nearly circular uh, orbit, about 48,200 and 50,075 kilometers from Neptune's center, which is the usual way to measure orbital size. Neptune has a radius just under 25,000 kilometers. So if both of these moons orbited in the same plane, they pass less than 2,000 kilometers from each other. That's a problem, okay, because of gravitational pull, right? If both these moons orbited in the same plane, over time their gravi gravitational interaction would each would uh, collide with each other, um, feeble as it may, but they would most likely force them into very different orbits. So how can they be in the orbits that they are now? So scientists very, very carefully looked at the orbits using data from the Hubble, Voyager 2, and ground-based scopes here on Earth, dating from 1981 to 2016. So it's a, it's a very long baseline, okay? Enough to get a really good grip on the orbital characteristics. Here's what they found. Okay, another thing about that law of conservation of angular momentum, so whatever angle we were at at the merry-go-round, when the kid flies off, he also will be at that angle. It's not. Because of the centrifugal force, it is not possible to change the angle which the kid flying off is rotating. You with me? Okay. Thalassa's orbit is almost directly over Neptune's equator, tilted by only one-tenth of one degree. But Naiad's orbit is tipped about 4.7 degrees. They're in the same plane, exactly the same plane. This has been known for a while, but using the updated numbers they calculated, they found that the two objects are in what's called a resonance, meaning that, that the orbits fall into a regular pattern with each other. Every time Naiad passes on the inside track, it's at the point in its orbit where it's either tipped up or tipped down at the most. Well, that's convenient. So instead of passing really close to the lasses, it's either above it toward Neptune's north or below it, maximizing the distance between them and minimizing the gravitational interaction. 
The orbits align just precisely enough that NIAD passes above it twice in a row and then below it twice in a row. That's not possible. Are you guys with me? That had to have been designed on purpose. It can't happen using the laws of physics that we know today. It's not possible. So what else? There are too few supernova events to indicate uh, a very, very old universe. According to astronomical observations, galaxies like our own experience about one supernova, which is a violently exploding star, every 25 years or so. The gas and the dust remnants from such explosions, like the Crab Nebula, expand outward rapidly and should remain visible for over a million years. Yet the nearby parts of our galaxy in which we could observe such gas and dust shells contain only about 200 supernova events, okay? So 200 times 25, that number is consistent with only about 7,000 years worth of supernovas. Oops, there's another problem. Comets, comets disintegrate far too rapidly for an old, old universe. It must be ice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. According to evolutionary theory, comets are supposed to be in the same age as the solar system, right? Because it all came from that one spinning dot about five billion years old. Yet each time a comet orbits close to the sun, it loses so much of its material that it could not survive much longer than about 100,000 years. Many comets have typical ages of less than 10,000 years. Evolutionists explain this discrepancy by assuming that A, comets come from an unobserved spherical Oort cloud. Have you guys ever heard that? A, an astronomer by the name of John Oort, uh, he theorized that these comets are being spit out of the Oort cloud. There's an issue. Um, no one has ever seen the Oort cloud. Oort never even saw the Oort cloud, okay? It's just an idea to explain what is contradictory to their theory. Um, and it's well beyond the, uh, the orbit of Pluto, or whatever they call it now. Poor Pluto is no longer a planet, so. <laughs> so the improbable gravitational interactions with infrequently passing stars often knock comets into the solar system. And other improbable interactions with planets slow down the incoming comets often enough to account for hundreds of comets being observed at the same time. So far, none of these assumptions has been substantiated either by observations or realistic calculations. Lately, there has been much talk of the Coupier Belt, it's another one, a disk of supposed comet sources lying in the plane of the solar system just outside the orbit of Pluto. Some asteroid-sized bodies of ice exist in that location, but they do not solve the evolutionist problem. Since according to evolutionary theory, the Coupier Belt would quickly become exhausted if there were no Oort cloud to supply it, okay? What's another one? How about the seafloor? There's not enough mud on it to support billions of years. Each year, water and winds erode about 20 billion tons of dirt and rock from the continents and deposit it in the ocean. This material accumulates as loose sediment on the hard basaltic, which is lava-formed uh, rock on the ocean floor. The average depth of all the sediment in the whole ocean is less than 400 meters. The main way to, uh, known to remove sediment from the ocean floor is by plate tectonic subduction, earthquakes, undersea earthquakes. So the floor slides slowly about a few centimeters a year bef uh, beneath the continents, taking some sediment with it. According to secular scientific literature, that process presently removes only about a billion tons per year, okay? Keep these numbers in mind. As far as anyone knows, the other 19 billion tons per year just simply accumulate, they just keep growing. At that rate, 
erosion would deposit the present mass of sediment in less than 12 million years. Yet according to evolutionary theory, erosion and plate subduction have been going on as long as the oceans have existed, an alleged three billion years. If that were so, the rates above would imply that the oceans would be massively choked with sediment dozens of kilometers deep. An alternative creationist ex explanation is that erosion from the waters of the Genesis flood running off of the continents deposited the present amount of sediment within a short amount of time, about 5,000 years ago, 5,500 to be more precise. Um, was anyone here in 09, during the flood of 09? Anyone out in Adna? Yeah? Someone's parents? Yep. After the levees broke, within three days, a lot of places, I know my friends uh, Ron and Heather are listening online, and their place is right off of Bunker Creek. They had about, what, six, seven feet of mud? Three days? Uh, okay, so imagine that. Now imagine if you have a worldwide flood that's washing out in a couple hours. How much mud are you gonna get deposited in one location? Very, very rapidly. Here's another issue. There's not enough sodium in the sea. That's right, the sea is not salty enough. Every year, rivers and other sources dump over 450 million tons of sodium into the ocean. Only 27% of this sodium manages to get back out of the sea each year. As far as anyone knows, the remainder just simply accumulates in the ocean, like the mud. If the sea had no sodium to start with, completely pure water, it would have accumulated its present amount in less than 42 million years in today's input and output rates. So you get where I'm going here, right? I'm assuming uniformitarian, just like they do, everything is as it always was, okay, to be fair. So this is much less than the evolutionary age of the ocean, which is, remember, three billion years. The usual reply to this discrepancy is that past sodium inputs must have been less and outputs greater. Again, denying their own theory of uniformitarianism. However, calculations that are as generous as possible to evolutionary scenarios still give a maximum age of only 62 million years, not three billion. Calculations for many other seawater elements give much younger ages of the ocean. Here's another one. The Earth's magnetic field is decaying far too rapidly for it to be the age that they say it is. The total energy stored in the Earth's magnetic field, dipole and non-dipole, is decreasing with a half-life of 1465 plus or minus 165 years. Evolutionary theories explain this rapid decrease, as well as how the Earth could have maintained its magnetic field for billions of years, are very complex and, and they're inadequate. A much better creationist theory exists, in my opinion. It's straightforward, based on sound physics, and explains many features of the field. It's creation, rapid reversals during the Genesis flood, surface intensity decreases, and increases until the time of Christ, and a steady decay since then. This theory matches paleomagnetic, historic, and present data, most startlingly with evidence for rapid changes. The main result is that the field's total energy, the non-surface intensity, has always decayed at least as fast as now. At that rate, the field cannot be more than 20,000 years old. It's a much younger view of the Earth. Okay, in the, in the geological record, you guys have seen pictures of that, the layers of rocks, right? So many of the strata are too tightly bent to indicate a very old Earth. In many mountainous areas, including our own northern Cascades, strata thousands of feet thick are bent and folded into hairpin shapes, very, very tight. The conventional geologic timescale says that these formations were deeply buried and solidified for hundreds of millions of years before they were bent. Yet the folding occurred without cracking, 
with radii so small that the entire formation had to be still wet and unsolidified when the bending occurred, as in a giant flood. This implies that the folding occurred less than a thousand years after they were deposited, not hundreds of millions of years. What about biological material? Yep, it also decays way too fast. Natural radioactivity, mutations, decay. This degrades DNA and other biological material very, very rapidly. Measurements of the mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA recently forced researchers to revise the age of mitochondrial Eve. Have you guys heard of that theory yet? They say that we have found a common ancestor somewhere right around in the plains of Africa, and they nicknamed her mitochondrial Eve. No kidding. <laughs> We've known that for a substantial amount of time. And they theorized 200,000 years down to a possibility as low as 6,000 years. You get that? They're saying that because of our common ancestor, which they can prove scientifically, our mitochondrial Eve, she cannot be older from a range of about 200,000 to 6,000 years old. Wait, I thought humans, or at least a humanoid type form, was supposed to be on this planet for hundreds of millions of years. DNA experts insist that DNA cannot exist in natural environments longer than 10,000 years. It gets decayed far too rapidly. Yet intact strands, get this, intact strands, just like with the T-Rex the skin, of DNA appear to have been recovered from fossils allegedly much older. Neanderthal bones, insects in amber, straight up Jurassic Park style, and even from dinosaur fossils. Bacteria allegedly 250 million years old apparently have been revived with no DNA damage. It's not possible, they can't be that old. They would decay after 10,000 years. Soft tissue, blood cells from a dinosaur have all astonished these, quote, experts. Fossil radioactivity, what about that? Well, it shortens geologic ages to just literally a few years. Radio halos are rings of color um, formed around microscopic bits of radioactive materials in rock crystals. So they're fossil evidence of radioactive decay. So squashed um, polonium-210 radio halos indicate that Jurassic, Triassic, Eocene formations in the Colorado Plateau were deposited within months of each other. Months, not hundreds of millions of years and not even years. Orphan polonium-218 radio halos having no evidence of their mother elements imply accelerated nuclear decay and very rapid formation of associated uh, minerals. What about helium, one of the, the prime elements? There's too much helium in minerals also. Uranium and uh, thorium generate helium atoms as they decay to lead. A study published in the Journal of Geophysical Research showed that such helium produced in zircon crystals in deep, hot Precambrian granite rock has had no time to escape. Hmm. So though the rocks contain one half billion years worth of nuclear decay products, newly measured rates of helium loss from the zircon show that the helium has been leaking for only about 6,000 years. That's a problem. You, you get that? This is not only evidence for the young age of the Earth, but also for the episodes of greatly accelerated decay rates of long half-life nuclei with thousands of years ago, compressing radioisotope timescales enormously. Now, going back to carbon-14, there's too much of it. There's too much carbon-14 in the geological strata to indicate a very old planet. So with their short 5,700-year half-life, no carbon-14 atoms should exist in any carbon older than 250,000 years. It shouldn't happen. We shouldn't see it. Yet it has proven impossible to find any natural source of carbon below Pliocystine, which is the Ice Age, 
strata that does not contain significant amounts of carbon-14, even though such strata are supposed to be millions or billions of years old. Conventional carbon-14 labs have been aware of this anomaly since the early 80s. They've striven to eliminate it and are unable to account for it. Lately, the world's best such laboratory, which has learned during two decades of low C14 measurements, how not to contaminate specimens externally under contract to creationists, woohoo, we hired them, confirms such observations for coal samples and even for a dozen diamonds, which cannot be contaminated with recent carbon. These constitute very, very strong evidence that the Earth is only thousands, not billions of years old. How about skeletons? That's a problem too. There's not enough Stone Age skeletons. Evolutionary anthropologists now say that Homo sapiens existed for at least 185,000 years before agriculture began, during which time the world population of humans was roughly constant between one and 10 million. All that time they were burying their dead, often with artifacts, right? By that scenario, they would have buried at least 8 billion bodies, given that time span, if the evolutionary timescale is correct. Buried bones should be able to last for much longer than 200,000 years. So many of the supposed 8 billion Stone Age skeletons should still be around and certainly be with buried artifacts, yet only a few thousand have been found. This implies that the Stone Age was much shorter than evolutionists think, perhaps only a few hundred years in many areas. Agriculture, farming, too recent. The usual evolutionary picture has men existing as hunters and gatherers for about 185,000 years during the Stone Age before discovering agriculture less than 10,000 years ago. Yet the archeological evidence shows that Stone Age men were as intelligent as we are, extremely intelligent. So that's another misconception. We take a look at human men or uh, ancient humans as being just, you know, ugh, rock smash, you know, that, that kind of deal. Do you realize in, in Egypt, we have found encased in stone um, analog computers? A computer that's an analog in Egypt, okay? We find extremely advanced tools. It's very improbable that none of the eight billion people mentioned should discover that plants grow from seeds, right? It's more likely that men were without agriculture for a very, very short time after the flood, if even at all. History, written history is far too short to support this age. According to evolutionists, Stone Age Homo sapiens existed for 190,000 years before beginning to even make written records about four to 5,000 years ago. Prehistoric men built megalithic monuments, made beautiful cave paintings, kept records of lunar phases. These are advanced people. Why would he wait 2,000 centuries before using the same skills to record his history? Doesn't make any sense. The biblical time scale at this point, I believe is much more likely. So next week, um, we'll get into more Age of the Earth stuff, and I'll have slides um, that's, that's coming. I just got to figure out how to you know, make this talk to that. So, so there's that. Um, do you guys have any questions? I know we went over a ton, a ton of information today, but I, I want to make sure um, that we understand that the actual science, it very, very much points to, if not even proves, um, the creationist worldview. It doesn't, it really doesn't fit with this billions of years timeline. It doesn't fit uh, without a creator God. It's it just, that's the science, guys. It doesn't even come close to fitting. You mentioned the uh, silt at the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. I mean, that 
I do. I'm glad you brought that up. So the comment was, we had mentioned the silt at the bottom of the ocean, or the amount of silt at the bottom of the ocean. Now, when NASA um, had landed successfully Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon, do you guys remember seeing the pictures of that, the video? Okay. Do you remember that the ladder was like four feet too short from the surface of the moon? Why? Because the evolutionary astronomers had suggested, based on their age, how much earth, uh, space dust and everything accumulates, it should be this tall. Now, when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, and you can see his footprints, it's like what, half an inch? So that indicates another, thanks for, for reminding me of that, that indicates another clue that very, very wrong, given these presuppositions. It doesn't fit. There's so many evidences for a young Earth and for a creator. Well, he said specifically there's only enough dust to kick. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, for those listening online, the comment was what Neil Armstrong said specifically, that there's only enough dust on here to kick. Very, very little. Like I said, maybe a half inch, quarter inch to half inch of dust. Not the three or four feet like they were assuming it would be. And the calculation is, is that that much dust would only take five to 10,000 years. Correct. The calculation being that that much dust would only take five to 10,000 years. Not long at all. Not even close. Yes? Uh, the speed of light. Uh-huh. We're seeing universe of stars millions of light years away. Does that make... That's kind of uh, got me confused here. The speed of light, what, being well, as far as time? We're seeing, that we're, we're seeing things that happen a million light years away. Mm-hmm. So you're that light reaches us. Right. We're watching. So that with, with, with that understanding that it means that we've been in existence for many years. Potentially. So so the question is, what about the speed of light? And we're we're witnessing um, astronomical events that now finally reach us that were supposedly happening millions and millions of years ago because the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second, right? So how does that uh, defeat or even become problematic for the creationist young earth, young universe worldview? Well, there are certain things that happen um, with light. Uh, there's things called redshift, for example, that actually will speed up the speed of light. Um, the other thing is that has been postulated is just when creation happened, these things all happened simultaneously, right? So what we're looking at, we're interpreting it as a very, very long time because, again, we're using a constant of the speed of light, assuming that it is a constant. Um, unfortunately, it's not. In, in recent uh, studies, we have seen that light can be very, very fastly sped up and very much slowed down, particle accelerators, things like that. So sorry, Einstein equals mc squared really doesn't work because um, E is energy time equals mass times the constant of light squared. So that kind of falls apart at this point. Um, so we're looking at it thinking that it's exactly 186,000 miles per second and it's no faster. Um, but what we found it is, it, it's significantly faster than that. So what we think is millions and millions of years in the past that we're looking at could potentially only be a few, few thousand years or even a few hundred years in the past. Well, but your other, other issue that you have to also look at is, is that if you look at how it talks about 
God's spread out galaxy. Right. So, are we looking at prior to the spread? Because they, they do realize that the universe is continuing to expand. Mm -hmm. So, what we're seeing exactly so the comment was for listening online when we're looking at the galaxies and, and the universe constantly expanding which we can prove we have seen so where are we looking at it from right are we looking at it from before the expansion or are we looking at it midway through where at what point are we looking at it so that creates creates an issue yes this is as far as cultures and things that also embrace like origins by a creator like such as Native Americans. Uh -huh. Do you have do you recommend a resource that like does a side by side like, of the different understanding like Christianity and then maybe like Native American system so we can understand that as far as the origins of creation and whatnot? Yeah. Um Right. Not that I'm aware of. So the question was, is there a comprehensive side-by-side -side where we can take a look at different um, cultures and their origin or their creation stories so we can compare and see where the similarities are? Um, I'll find one. I'll definitely find one. Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah, I'm not aware of one right now. I mean, heck, even if I have to draw a chart, I'll create it. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to find the different histories. Um, so like I said, like with the Chinese. But thanks, guys. Uh, and like I said, next week, hopefully we'll have slides and we'll be able to get into even more of the Big Bang Theory and creation.